Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall have a bit of a refresher course on some of the main characters that make up the Trump administration to get a sense of who they are, where they're coming from, and how they are working tirelessly to ruin everything good about our government and find brand new ways to be terrible. This is, you know, just sort of a, a mix, uh, not on a specific topic other than these people are are all in the Trump administration, and they're all completely horrific. So, you know, it's, it's sort of a who's who of, you know, who are these people and what's up with them? You know, you get the question uh, these days, like, hey, what happened to Rudy Giuliani? I, I have this vaguely positive memory of him after 9-11 before, you know, he could talk about nothing other than 9-11. And that went a little off the rails. But like, didn't he used to be not the worst? Well, we're going to find out. Bill Barr, of course, is uh, very much in the news as he's uh, working tirelessly to cover up Trump, Ukraine, etc. Uh, so we'll see about his history. Mike Pompeo, sort of similarly, you know, going around the world trying to uh, stir up trouble with some foreign adventures. So we'll see what he's all about. Uh, Steve Mnuchin. Is, we probably don't hear enough about him, but he's running the Treasury Secretary. We probably don't hear much. We probably don't hear enough about him, but he's running the Treasury, so we'll find out what he's about. And and then all the while, Mike Pence is just sort of lurking in the background, so we'll get his backstory. And unfortunately, I didn't even have time to get into the sadistic white supremacists running our immigration policy or the Christian supremacists working to redirect public funds into Christian schools, all while protecting rapists. But I do what I can. Now onto the show, clips today come from Past Present, Intercepted, The Majority Report, Democracy Now!, and The Bradcast. They called him America's Mayor. Nearing the end of his two terms as mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani emerged as a national figure following the September 11th attacks. He rode that new reputation hard first attempting to postpone the election and waive the mayoral term limits, then to stump for George W. Bush's re-election, and then to run for president himself in 2008. But now he has a new reputation. Donald Trump's sidekick, possibly his lackey, probably his fall guy. Which has left a lot of people wondering what happened to Rudy Giuliani. So, Natalia, what happened to Rudy Giuliani? Well, on the one hand, I think as your intro points out, Rudy Giuliani has been transformed from quote unquote America's mayor who gained the respect, I think, of Republicans, Democrats to uh, somebody who seems fringe, but strangely in the center of American politics, who certainly seems unhinged, who seems like an unprincipled stooge for, um, for our Republican president and to stand against everything that liberals and progressives stand for. So that's one narrative. But I think there's another one that a lot of people have been pointing out that Rudy Giuliani always exhibited some of the tendencies which he's exhibiting today. Rudy Giuliani was always authoritarian, self-aggrandizing, um, attracted to bold displays of power and to proximity towards those who could elevate him. And so I think that I'm excited to unpack this with you guys, because I think we both should point to a really stark change in who he is and what he represents, but also to the evidence that for a long time, like he had the seeds of what has uh grown today uh, to be his public persona. 
Yeah, I'm much more persuaded by that second narrative than the first. Uh, I don't see his current um, form as all that much of a break from the past as much as it is a continuation. And I like this idea that there are like seeds that are blooming, um, perhaps into weeds, um, but that they've <laughs> kind of always been there. And I would say that even in some ways, they've been fairly fully grown all along. And maybe we should stop with a the metaphor there. But, you know, I see <laughs> 9-11, <laughs> 9-11 much more as the aberration in his in his public life, but I think it's an aberration that made him a national figure. And so I think it's distorted his reputation in many ways and also has shaded our understanding of him and his politics and this type of leadership he um, has carried out for, you know, 30 years. But there's two layers that this conversation is happening on. And I think if we separate them, it's going to be a little easier to understand because there's the layer of like how Giuliani has acted as a person in political life and what America's image of Giuliani right. has been. And he's been so adept in many ways of shaping a public facing image. In fact, much more adept at that than things like governing. Um, and so he's been able to mold himself into the tough on crime mayor of the 1990s who's going to clean up New York and then at the time of uh, the September 11th attacks as the man who's going to rush down to ground zero and keep his city safe and do anything, including cancel elections, just to make sure that New York's going to be okay. Um, <laughs> and then is going to run for president built on that reputation at a time you know, he, he kind of missed his moment in a way. If he could have run in 2004, he probably could have gotten away with his catchphrase, which at the time was mocked as a noun, a verb in 9-11. But by 2008, because the memory of 9-11 had been so subsumed by two very unpopular wars, it wasn't quite as effective. But his ability to shapeshift for the media narrative of the moment has been one of his consistencies that I think make us think of him as changing over time in a way that I think you're right, both of you, that he has many more consistencies, I think, than actual changes. I mean, that shape shifting is certainly what makes him popular with Trump, or at least what allows for the relationship to happen. I mean, I think one of the things that's been said about both of them is, you know, they have, they, they will make themselves into whatever they need to be in order to stay at the center of the nation's attention. Um, I do think one of the interesting things is while both of them are not interested in policy at all. Giuliani at least had a track record when it came to governing. And I mean, we can kind of push back a little bit at that as well, or at least question some of his governing choices. But there was an interest. And I think, you know, just being a mayor, that executive position called for a level of engagement with governing. Um, and obviously was w that we saw most clearly in, in the days around 9-11. But, you know, Trump doesn't even have that interest at all. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's changing around Giuliani as well is the Republican Party. So like in 2001, as people are trying to think of Rudy Giuliani as a national figure. He's somebody who was in support of marriage equality, who was very socially liberal in a lot of ways, even as he was not in a lot of other ways that we'll, we'll talk about. But so was Donald Trump in a lot of ways. And as those socially conservative policies become less and less important to the Republican Party. I think sometime after 2004, Neil, you might have a better sense of this, but as it matters less how these candidates are living their lives, mm -hmm. um, that opens up some space for him in the Republican Party as well. Yeah, I th that's right. And before we dive into his policy, though, I do want to just ask another question of – so. 
do is it to say that the change that the change like i think both of you compel compellingly argue and i agree too is not substantive but aesthetic i mean i'm thinking about ken friedman's article in the new york times which i think neil you sent which is really good where he is making the case that um giuliani who officiated his wedding really did change and some of the examples that he uses is citizen rudy rushing into a burning church to save the chalice that he used to eat diet coke and pizza but now he's like this Hamptons hanger on. And, you know, while obviously in an op-ed, you need symbolic language to convey larger ideas. I was left in there seeing that Friedman, the author, clearly feels injured and like there was this genuine change. But it seemed that there wasn't a ton of substance to his argument for how this guy fundamentally changed besides these better optics. Well, let's go back and look at those policies, because I think that will help us answer that question. And, you know, sidebar, people tell themselves the stories they need to explain why they didn't change their minds sooner. Um, and so that would suggest a narrative of sudden and dramatic change for someone who's only recently decided that Rudy Giuliani is not a, a guy on the up and up. But Let's think about 1990s New York. Rudy Giuliani is building his reputation by putting in place essentially this sociological idea by James Q. Wilson of the broken window theory, this idea that if you can stamp out small crimes, you'll be able to end big crimes, including major violent crimes, which had been a big issue in New York City, especially in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Now, violent crime was already on the decline by the time that Rudy Giuliani becomes mayor, but he really does double down on on this so-called broken windows policing. And that means arresting the squeegee men who are washing windows on 42nd Street. It means stop and frisk, which is a policy that targeted young black and brown men across the city in a way that really put police officers and communities of color at odds with one another and ratcheted up, I think, tensions in a way that community policing would not have and set a standard in New York of treating minority men in particular as criminals. Yeah, that was the decade that there those were the years when I came to New York as a college freshman in 1996. And my dad had grown up in New York. And I remember my parents kind of reassuring me that New York was now a safe place and kind of crediting Giuliani with that. And then I remember being in college and as there was activism over police brutality, Amadou Diallo was someone who an African American man who was shot, I believe, 41 times by police for pulling a gun. And there was a lot of activism on campus around this. I remember that started to kind of tarnish my image of what the cost of this law and order governing was. And then to break it full circle, I remember my parents who had been pretty rah-rah on this, you know, cleaning up a city for their daughter to be safe in college in a city that hadn't been so before. They visited me in college one time and they said, oh, you know, we were walking in the park and my mom said, I lay down on the bench with like my head on your dad's lap. And a cop came over and was like, get up, that's loitering. And they were like, Wow. That it, yeah, they said, wow, I guess this is what Giuliani's New York looks like. And obviously, that's not the most egregious that way that police are policing behavior. But I remember so clearly being like, oh, there are many sides to this issue and seeing it play out around me in, in a range of ways. 
Yeah, I I came to New York shortly thereafter. I moved in the summer of 98, right after I graduated from college. And and my parents had that same sort of story about me moving there. Like, good good thing that you're going at at a time in which Giuliani has cleaned it up and and your ability to even kind of even be there, or at least for them to allow me to be there. Um, was predicated, I think, on that, that idea that Giuliani had cleaned up the city, including, you know, Times Square and the vice yep. business that was happening uh, in Times Square. And what I think has been really interesting is that historians have been able to show actually that Giuliani benefited from what was happening nationally in cities you know, everywhere, which was a reduction in crime that really starts in 1990. So Mm -hmm. a couple of years before Giuliani even takes office. And a lot of that reduction of crime has to do with the end of the crack epidemic um, and also an improving economy that's happening uh, during the Clinton administration. And so a series of factors um, that, you know, from the vantage point of time, historians and other scholars have pointed to as really national trends um, and not some particular form of leadership in one particular place. Mm -hmm. Can we also just... I want to take a second to take us out of the um, the policy questions and also to look at just how racist Rudy Giuliani's career was in the 1990s. He was running against Mayor Dinkins, an African-American mayor. He helped foment and lead a police riot that included a lot of anti-black slurs being yelled while he was there. Um, the way that he supported white police officers who were attacking and sometimes murdering black men, like this was not simply a matter of law and order policy that happened to have racist outcomes, but this was Giuliani taking advantage of and even mobilizing white racism in the city in order to build his political power. And just a couple of years after, you know, the 1989 Central Park Five case, um, and, and the ways in which I think that shaped city politics for, I think, several years, um, and, and certainly one that he exploited in his rise to power. And something that made this hearty, wholehearted defense of police force acceptable and palatable and even embraced by a lot of people who might not usually see themselves as like staunch defenders of law right. and order politics, right? And I think that that is such a, an, a, an important foundation for thinking about who Rudy Giuliani became today. I, I was also really taken with an article by Matt Iglesias where he points to the difference between the way Giuliani embraced law and order sensibilities while uh, flouting in many ways the rule of law and how that is such an important mm-hmm. distinction in thinking about who he is today. And to me, right. um, that is like a fundamental framing to think about the way that people like Donald Trump and you know, lots of other people can call for this kind of hard line and really defend police force in a lot of ways as a form of law and order while using often extra legal um, ways to to achieve that and to accomplish other means as well that might not stand as as much of a contradiction in their own minds. And so I think we everyone should read that. We will definitely link to it. Well, and the big example to pull out of that is police commissioner Bernie Carrick, who Giuliani had appointed as police commissioner. Again, one of these like very bold authoritarian figures that Giuliani really liked, and he wanted to help him get a position in the Bush administration. And as soon as he's under any sort of scrutiny, you find out that Carrick is just like, Crime, 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 in a way that eventually like tarnishes his reputation. He ends up going to prison. He does not get that vaunted position in the Bush administration. But if you're thinking about the run up to support for Donald Trump, 
it almost seems predetermined if you look close enough at Rudy Giuliani's career. And I think that that's what's so interesting about this conversation about what the hell happened to Rudy Giuliani, especially because the answer seems to be this is who he always was. And that's why I think that the media um, side of things is so interesting because a lot of people's image of Giuliani was just so different from who he actually was as uh, somebody in government. So on February 14th, the Senate confirmed William Barr to be uh, the next attorney general. And during those confirmation hearings, uh, there was concern raised by some lawmakers over Barr's views on executive power. First, just lay out your understanding on how William Barr views presidential powers the and the executive branch's relationship to Congress. So to answer that question, you have to start by asking, which William Barr are we talking about? There's the William Barr who spent much of his career in the executive branch in the Reagan and then especially the Bush 41 administration. And later, while out in private practice, clearly a sort of partisan figure in terms of uh, his commentary to news outlets and the op-eds he was writing. And then there's the William Barr we saw at that confirmation hearing, who was a totally different person. That the Article II powers, the inherent authority of the commander-in-chief, give him the ability to take appropriated dollars for the Department of Defense and build a wall. I can't, without looking at the the statute, I really couldn't answer that. I'm not talking about a statute, I'm talking about the inherent authority of the president. Commander in chief. That's the kind of question I would go to OLC to answer. Okay. Get back with us on that. Soon. The William Barr we saw at the confirmation hearing was projecting a very moderate, centrist, uh, above the fray, statesmanlike attitude in which he often said things that seemed in line with mainstream understandings of checks and balances and constraints on what a president could do. But the William Barr who left plenty of writings. Up until that point, and especially the one who came of age in the 80s and early 90s, was a totally different figure. And that figure was as first the head of the Office of Legal Counsel for George H.W. Bush and eventually Deputy Attorney General and then Attorney General, heading into Bush's defeat by Bill Clinton in 1992, was a stalwart, robust believer in extremely strong vision of executive power. He was using those positions to advance the Reagan-Bush legal team's development of new theories of executive power in that era, in the time in which Reagan and the first George Bush were dealing with a Congress that was at least partially controlled by Democrats and was unwilling or resistant to the Reagan-Bush policy agenda, both in terms of domestic policy and foreign policy. And they were developing various novel theories for why Reagan and the Bush could do what they wanted to do without congressional authorization or indeed even in defiance of congressional prohibition. And those theories, including the very famous unitary executive theory, saturated William Barr's earlier stint in the Justice Department. And he wasn't just a member of the team that was advancing those theories, but he was a key philosopher uh, helping develop and advance them. 
Let's talk about some of the specifics of the unitary executive theory, particularly kind of came to a head or a twilight in the uh, midst of an aftermath of the Iran-Contra scandal. Essentially, Congress was prohibiting the Reagan-Bush administration from directly aiding the Contras in Nicaragua and other groups in Central America, the Bolin Amendment sought to prohibit that kind of direct aid. Basically, what they did was set up an alternative way of financing the Contras. But explain what you think is significant for people to know now about Iran-Contra in the context of William Barr ascending once again to the position of attorney general. Congress, in the form of the Boland Amendment, prohibited spending of funds to aid this group. It prohibits any agency involved in intelligence activities from obligating or expending funds for the purpose of which would have the effect of supporting directly or indirectly military or paramilitary operations in Nicaragua by any nation, group, organization, movement, or individual. The Reagan team thought that that was a bad foreign policy. They thought it was important to push back against communists in Central America, and they found a way around it by selling arms secretly to Iran, at inflated prices, in, in part to get hostages out, but also in part to acquire a pool of money that had not been appropriated by Congress. And then they directed that money to the Contras. And when this came to light, it raised a constitutional crisis of sorts. And the question was whether this was illegal, whether this had violated the Boland Amendment, and whether this was an attempt to get around constitutional powers given to Congress to decide where the U.S. government would and would not spend its money. And so there evolved out of this foreign policy dispute, what should we do about the Contras, if anything, a legal dispute about the scope and limits of executive power, and whether the Boland Amendment itself was a valid exercise of Congress's constitutional authorities, or whether the, the Boland Amendment had constituted a unlawful or unconstitutional intrusion into the president's constitutional authority to control the country's foreign affairs. And this was all taking place against the backdrop of domestic policy disputes over Reagan and his push for a deregulatory agenda that Congress, after 1982, was unwilling to advance. And out of that came something called the unitary executive theory, which was the notion that the Constitution lets the president control all powers that are executive in nature. Instead of having overlapping uh, system of separation of powers where each branch sort of Venn diagrams with the other branch and can check and balance it and by sharing authority over certain areas, this was the notion that any power that was executive in nature was exclusively the president's to control, whether that was domestic policy or eventually foreign policy. That theory that Congress could not fracture the president's control of executive power was rejected by the Supreme Court in a famous 1988 case called Morrison v. Olson, which upheld the independent prosecutor law that Congress had passed after Watergate that said that there could be a prosecutor who's deciding who to prosecute, and that's an executive power that the president did not control. The seven-to-one defeat, there was one recusal of that theory should have been the end of that of the unitary executive theory. But the Reagan-Bush legal team, including William Barr, remained quite committed to it. The Justice Department team 
in which Bill Barr was a key figure in 1989 going forward, continued to look for ways to explicitly, they wrote memos talking about it, looking for ways to push back against congressional intrusions into what they saw as the rightful power of the presidency to try to limit the impact of that Supreme Court ruling that had rejected their theory. And that's the uh, separation of powers slash partisan stew that was the formative experience of William Barr back in the day. In one of those memos in 1989, um, Barr outlined how Congress, in his view, quote, intrudes or attempts to intrude into the functions and responsibilities assigned by the Constitution to the executive branch. He wrote also, quote, only by consistently and forcefully resisting such congressional incursions can executive branch prerogatives be preserved. Talk about the other players involved with the modern Republican Party embrace when they're in executive power of the unitary executive, particularly people like Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. I mean, all of these theories that we're talking about later in the Bush 43, the George W. Bush administration, get revived and fused with a very strong notion of what the president as commander in chief has the inherent authority to do. And that's the core of the famous John Yu memos about torture and about warrantless surveillance. You articulated a definition of illegal conduct and interrogations, explaining that it must, quote, shock the conscience. Is that, do you remember that? Is that accurate? Sir, I, I believe you're referring to the um, memo that was sent by the Justice Department to the Department of Defense in 2003 that... Um, defined uh, cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment. Yeah, and, what's and the answer, yes or no? Do you remember that? Shock the conscience. I'm just saying that... The fr I'm just Taking the notion that the commander-in-chief has broad, unwritten powers to con do what he thinks is necessary to protect national security, even if there's no statute that explicitly says he can do that thing, and fusing it with this unitary executive theory that says if the executive has control over something, it has exclusive control or preclusive control, and there's Congress can't place limits on it or regulate it or say that some other person lower in the executive branch gets to decide in their expertise what to do or what not to do. It's really a decade later in the 9-11 era where all these things get brought together. I've likened it to uh, a Reese's peanut butter cup where the chocolate of the unitary executive theory gets fused with the peanut butter of inherent commander-in-chief power and the, to create this new thing that was you know, more powerful than the sum of its parts. David Addington, who was the lawyer who worked for Dick Cheney in the Bush 43 administration and in some ways was the most important lawyer in the Bush administration at the time of 9-11 and its aftermath. He controlled, not on paper, but in practice, the Bush 43 legal team. And he had worked with Dick Cheney when Cheney was a congressman in the 80s and was on the special committee that investigated the Iran-Contra affair. And while that committee, including Republicans on that committee in the majority, condemned the, the Reagan administration and said this went too far and this was a violation of the law and the spirit of the Constitution and so forth, there was a minority view in that era of Reagan defenders, chief among them Representative Dick Cheney, who thought the real scandal was that Congress had passed this Bolin Amendment in the first place. And the minority report they wrote 
is an early sign of where you can see some of these theories starting to emerge that the president is beyond the reach of Congress when it comes to things like what he chooses to do in foreign policy. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, the online service that gives you unlimited access to your own fully licensed therapist via phone, chat, and video. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional in-person therapy, and there's the added convenience of doing it right from home, but you still get the same professional help from fully accredited therapists. BetterHelp's counselor network has a broad range of expertise, which you may not be able to find locally, and since you can switch to a new therapist at any time, at no extra cost, you can be confident that you'll find someone who fits your needs. You can message your therapist at any time, and you'll get a timely response, and for the big talks, you can have your video or phone calls timed to fit your schedule. Go to their website and check out what BetterHelp users are saying about the service. New testimonials are posted daily, and they're giving Best of the Left listeners 10% off your first month of therapy when you go to betterhelp.com slash B-O-T-L. That's betterhelp.com dot com slash BOTL for ten percent off. Now, with all this said about Donald Trump doubling down, and people have expressed in the past like, I don't think he's gonna leave, and I've gotta say I've just poo-pooed that a little bit because Donald Trump and what army? But of course the way that you would uh fight an election would be to say that it was somehow rigged or that it was somehow illegal or whatnot. But you would need, obviously, not just private attorneys. You would need some force of the U.S. government. Well, yesterday, for some reason, Bill Barr decided to wade in on this. And by this, I mean, like, the president coming out and saying that those four congresswomen hate America. Here's the way that Bill Barr would basically say the exact same thing that Donald Trump did, which to me signifies that the idea that this guy came in to protect the institution of the presidency was BS. He's a movement conservative. He's there to protect Donald Trump, period, end of story. He figures this is a way maybe that he'll get super wealthy and a way that he'll put a bunch of movement conservatives on the court. God knows what else it is. Play this. My concern today is that under the banner of identity politics, some political factions are seeking to obtain power by dividing Americans. And they undermine the values that draw us together such as a shared commitment to our country's success. This is the breeding ground for hatred, and we must reject it. It's very surprising you talk about Trump that way. Well, look, what, what do you think he's saying when he talks about identity politics, right? That's a code word for it's brown people. It's black people. It's women speaking out. What does he say about not sharing our shared values of America, wanting America's success? In other words, they hate America, which is exactly what Donald Trump had just said. So make no mistake about it. Bill Barr 
is Donald Trump with a brain. And they've always had a, uh, you know, I think uh, Pompeo is is the analog at Secretary of State. They are they actually you could look at these guys as like the upmarket channeling of the exact same message, and they always echo his worst statements on foreign and domestic policy, and they always do it in a way that you know is is the line designed for the cover you're talking about but those two i think perform a similar public relations function it, it, it's it's amazing it, but the the problem with that of course at the end uh, the day is that you've got a guy who's in charge of the D, uh, the DOJ Let's talk, Lee, about Secretary of State nominee Mike Pompeo. Um, you've written about how he once depicted the war on terror as an Islamic battle against Christianity. Mike Pompeo, who's the current director of the Central Intelligence Agency, a former congressman. Hi, Amy. Yes, that's right. I think this nomination to elevate Pompeo as Secretary of State signals a much more aggressive posture from Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump campaigned for office by portraying himself as a skeptic of foreign intervention, but Pompeo represents a very different view. Pompeo has supported foreign intervention from Yemen to Syria. In the last year, he's spoken out and described the leadership of uh, Iran and North Korea as, a, as an existential threat to the United States, suggesting that he's, he supports regime, regime change. And, you know, Pompeo represents a, a, just a very different temperament from Rex Tillerson. Rex Tillerson has been willing to provide an even-handed assessment of very complex foreign policy issues when there is a UAE-Saudi Arabia attempt to blockade Qatar. Uh, Rex Tillerson was willing to push back on that, on issues such as uh, military support to Egypt and uh, human rights abuses. He's been willing to speak out, and, and Rex Tillerson has been willing to speak out and push back against some of the worst impulses of Donald Trump. On the other hand, Pompeo has been a very loyal kind of sycophant to Donald Trump, uh, pandering to his worst instincts and promoting foreign intervention. And most critically here, uh, I think, you know, we, we took a look at Pompeo's different statements to think tanks, to churches around the country when he served as a member of Congress. And Pompeo has described the war on terror as a battle between religions. He's depicted uh, the, the fights in the Middle East and the war on terror as a uh, conflict between Christianity and, and Islam and, and saying that the, the Christians uh, need to mobilize against this Muslim threat. So he, he really kind of has taken extreme viewpoints. If he wants to serve as the chief diplomat for the United States, uh, this is deeply problematic. Lee, I want to go to a video clip that you've written about. This is Mike Pompeo addressing a church group in Wichita in 2014. Threat to America is from people who deeply believe that Islam is the way and the light and the only answer. And so as we think about what U.S. policy needs to be, how we will begin to combat this, 
we, we need to recognize that uh, these folks believe that it is religiously driven for them to wipe Christians from the face of the earth. They may be wrong. There's some debate about that, what the Quran actually says. Uh, they may be wholly misguided, and I will tell you it is absolutely a minority within the Muslim faith. But these folks are serious, and they abhor Christians, and will continue to press against us until we make sure that we pray and stand and fight and make sure that we know that Jesus Christ is our Savior is truly the only solution. That was Mike Pompeo when he was a congressman from Kansas in 2014, Lee Fong. Yeah, that's right. You know, I've covered Mike Pompeo for some eight years now. I reported on Pompeo's first election to Congress in 2010 when he was running for a seat in the Wichita area. And, you know, there's a, a disturbing pattern that I think we should we should talk a little bit about. Pompeo, from his very first campaign, um, has had a history of racially tinged comments of antagonizing the Muslim community. You know, his first Democratic opponent, Raj Goyal, an Indian American, his campaign sent out a statement describing Raj Goyal as a quote unquote turban topper. The campaign later apologized for that statement, but then put up billboards all around the the Kansas seat, reminding voters to, quote, vote American. Once he got into office, Pompeo has had a long history of, again, antagonizing Muslim Americans. He called for uh, a a protest and encouraged harassment of a local mosque in Kansas, falsely accusing them of supporting terrorism. After the Boston bombing, Pompeo went out and made a statement demanding that the Muslim community condemn and apologize uh, for that attack, even though uh, well before he made that statement, all the leading Muslim civil rights groups had already condemned this attack. So, you know, you know this is ridiculous for m- many reasons, not only because of that, but because he's never uh, demanded something similar from Christian groups after Christian terror attacks. You know, for incidents like the Charleston shooting, Dylan Roof was a proud Christian. Uh, you don't see Pompeo demanding an apology or condemnation from the Christian community. He's been very selective in his demands. I I believe he's been on uh, anti-Muslim activist Frank Gabney's radio show 20 times. Um, He has a very close relationship uh, with that individual. And Act for America, um, this is one of the most influential and aggressive anti-Muslim organizations in the country. They've organized protests and harassment campaigns against Muslims all over the country. Act for America, this anti-Muslim hate group, actually awarded Pompeo their highest award, recognizing um, uh, his, his long history of an- antagonizing the Muslim community. And Lee Fung, his connection to the Koch brothers? Right. And I think this is very important for understanding Pompeo's character. Pompeo has deep ties to the Koch brothers. The Wichita seat that he represented in Kansas was the headquarters of Koch Industries, Early in his career, he received an investment from the Koch brothers when he started an aerospace company. The Koch brothers really handpicked him to run for that open seat in 2010. His only political experience was appearing at Tea Party events organized by the Koch brothers' political machine, and they were his largest contributor. Why is this important? Well, once he got to Congress, Pompeo was a loyal foot soldier for the Koch brothers' political agenda. He constantly attacked Uh, pollution regulations, climate change regulations, and advanced attacks on renewable energy. So, you know, other than tax cuts, this is a top legislative priority for the Koch brothers. And I think that that speaks to 
Pompeo's character that he's really been beholden uh, to his political supporters. And, and again, just looking at his relationship with Trump, he was a big Trump supporter during the presidential campaign. He's been incredibly loyal, um, unwilling to, to really question uh, Trump's agenda. And so if he's a secretary of state, um, he will be very different from Rex Tillerson, who's at least who at least attempted to be even-handed in some complicated disputes. Pompeo, I think, is much more likely to be a loyal foot soldier. John Kiriakou, you had a different feeling about um, Mike Pompeo, who President Trump just uh, tweeted when he uh, informed Rex Tillerson he was fired that Mike Pompeo would be replacing him as Secretary of State. Not, not necessarily different. Um, I think, I think all of that is true. Um, and, and I, I'll tell you where I think he's most dangerous is on Iran. Because Mike Pompeo has made it very, very clear that he intends to take a, a tough stand on Iran. He opposes the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, consequences be damned. And, you know, President Trump likes to surround himself with yes men on, on issues like that, like Iran and terrorism. Mike Pompeo is a yes man. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. Talk about what motivated you to write this, the human tragedies that we're seeing right now, and not just the role that Trump administration officials played in uh, what's happened today, but what they're doing now, as you write, to perpetuate it. What motivated me was that I was sitting there in 2016, the election was underway, and I was watching Donald Trump build support with his populist message on the right, which was resonating. And I was watching Bernie Sanders build support with his populist message on the left that was resonating, which meant that the vast majority of Americans thought the system was broken. And yet the unemployment rate was low. You know, the president, Barack Obama, was telling us the economy was going great, but most people just didn't believe it. And so I started to ask, well, what happened to all of our wealth? Why do people feel so uneasy? And uh, so I decided to start to look at the 8 million homes that were lost to foreclosure during the housing bust. How did we lose them? What happened to them? Because they didn't just disappear. And our country has been like the, the, the housing bust was so traumatic. The journalism is just stuck, right? We're still on the big short. But the big short was a decade ago now. So I wanted to do something that brought us up to date. And then... Tell us about Sandy Jolly. 
Sandy Jolly um, was this woman that I found in Southern California who her, her, you know, just like typical American family. Uh, her dad worked for the water department. Her mom, uh, worked at a company that made business checks. They scrimped and saved over many years. They bought this house in Thousand Oaks, which is just outside of Los Angeles. And they lived there for 30 years until they got sold this reverse mortgage that sapped their equity. Um, if they give the bank gave them a little bit of cash, and then kind of compounded interest every single month. And she fought to get this mortgage reversed. And then, in sequence, her house was foreclosed on by Steve Mnuchin, who's now his bank, who's now Donald Trump's Treasury Secretary. Then it was sold on the courthouse steps to a private equity fund, or actually a shell company controlled by a private equity fund, uh, that was founded by Tom Barrick, who was Donald Trump's best friend. Um, and then this, then she ended up paying $42,000 in rent to rent the house that her family used to own. Then, um, then the story doesn't end because even after she moved out, she's like, okay, enough of this. It's too traumatic for me to pay rent for my own house. The house ends up being sold along with all of these other homes that Tom Barrick bought to this other company uh, called Invitation Homes, which was founded by another Trump-connected uh, billionaire, uh, Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone, who's worth uh, about $15 billion. And his company now owns 80,000 homes all across the country. And they've started to borrow heavily against these homes, taking out gigantic mortgage-backed securities. Um, which now are building another kind of bubble, like the one we saw the housing bust. But what made Sandy such a good character for a book is that throughout this whole story, she fought every step of the way. And eventually, she won an $89 million whistleblower settlement against Steve Mnuchin's bank. Explain how that happened. Well, it's really complicated, but basically the nut of it is that Steve Mnuchin, as I was saying earlier— his bank, the foreclosures were subsidized by us, the taxpayers. We were backing up all these loans. And we, Steve Mnuchin, the current Treasury Secretary. That's right. Donald Trump's current Treasury Secretary. Ten years ago, when he was running a bank, he struck a deal with the federal government where the federal government actually paid him when he foreclosed on families to mitigate his losses. We paid him. Uh, his group more than a billion dollars. But there were conditions attached to these payments. He couldn't just, like— you know, foreclose wantonly on people. He had to follow rules. Uh, for example, um, there was one rule related to these reverse mortgages that if the property had decreased in value, as many of them did during the recession, that you had to offer it back to the family at the value of the loan or 95% of the appraised value, whichever was lower, right? And there were lots of other rules, very, very complicated rules that he was supposed to follow. And what Sandy noticed as she you know, dealt with her own 10-year fight against this bank, she started to hear from lots of other families who were going through the same thing. And she became one of these, like, experts in high finance from her position as just a regular consumer. Who lost her home. Who lost her home. But even after she lost her home, she still didn't give up. It was just incredible. Just incredible. So she's sitting in her family home that she's lost a foreclosure. She's paying rent to this private equity firm. And even then, She's not giving up. And so she starts Googling terms like federal whistleblower. And uh, she ends up with this whistleblower attorney in Washington, D.C. She tells him 
I've got evidence of a massive fraud. Whistleblower attorney in D.C. is like, this is a little bit odd. I'm used to whistleblowers being like corporate insiders or government officials. This is just regular homeowner in Southern California. But he sends him his paperwork. Uh, he even hired a private investigator to look into her. Um, checked out, looked through the paperwork. And um, anyway, he ends up bringing her to Washington. She meets with the Justice Department. She meets with the FBI. She meets with the HUD Inspector General. And uh, eventually, uh, the uh, the bank, Steve Mnuchin's bank, uh, was forced to pay an $89 million settlement, of which, uh, that went to the taxpayers, she got $1.6 million. Um, of course, by that time, Steve Mnuchin was no longer in charge of this bank. He was the Treasury Secretary. He was in charge of the entire U.S. Treasury. Yes, so he didn't have to pay any of this $89 million, right? He had flipped out of the bank. In fact, one of the things I write up in the book is that, you know, he, being a kind of a hedge fund guy, an investment banker, he always intended to flip this bank. But when it came time to sell the bank, uh, Steve Mnuchin lives in this apartment, uh, apartment building on uh, Park Avenue, 740 Park Avenue. It's been called the world's richest apartment building. His upstairs here neighbor, in New York City. here in New York City, and he was a 6,000 square foot two-story apartment. Uh, one of his upstairs neighbors is Steve Schwartzman, another Trump friend who lives in a 20,000-square-foot apartment that used to be home to John D. Rockefeller Jr. Um, and he's the one who's been buying up all these houses. But when Steve Mnuchin wanted to sell the bank uh, after, you know, it had increased in value following the recession, he actually sold it to one of his neighbors in the same building, uh, John Thane, uh, who is, uh, you may remember him, he was the head of Merrill Lynch when he spent federal bailout money on a $35,000 toilet for his office. Um, so he was Mnuchin's upstairs neighbor as well. And so he— So and when Mnuchin, you want to sell banks or whatever, you just go trick-or-treating in your own apartment building. Yeah, if you happen to live at 740 Park <laughs> Avenue, right, and live in an apartment that's 6,000 square feet, which is, by the way, one of the smaller apartments in this building. Um, but yet now he's actually trying to sell this New York apartment Mnuchin is now because he bought a new mansion in Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C., because he's the Treasury Secretary. And it can be yours, this mansion, this apartment on Park Avenue, uh, for the low, low price of $28 million. Um, so you mentioned Steve Mnuchin, the current Treasury Secretary. Um, just recently, his former bank, CIT, was ordered to pay an enormous redlining settlement based on activities um, when he was in charge. Can you talk about how this redlining works and also how the current policies are facilitating what Trump's inner circle did in the past and will facilitate even further wealth in the future? So I mentioned uh, when we were talking earlier with Juan that when Steve Mnuchin was running One West Bank, together with Joseph Odding, who is now also in the administration, he's the comptroller of the currency, which is America's top bank cop. And he was the CEO of One West Bank when Mnuchin was the chairman. Um, this is a bank that over a five-year period helped three African-Americans and 11 Latino families buy homes. At the same time, that its foreclosures were co were concentrated in communities of color. So a Fair Housing Act complaint was filed against this bank. I mean, Mnuchin sold this bank in 2015, right? He sold it for $3.4 billion to his upstairs neighbor, right? And now he's the Treasury Secretary. But 
our system of justice works very, very slow. And so only recently were claims of redlining based on the behavior of this bank when he was in charge finally adjudicated. And the bank uh, agreed to a $100 million redlining settlement. So now that the good news is that now that, uh, you know, Steve Mnuchin and Joseph Otting are no longer there, the bank is saying we are going to invest $100 million in low-income communities and communities of color. Um, the bad news is that Steve Mnuchin and Joseph Otting are now running the Treasury Department. And the laws that were used to make this settlement, the Fair Housing Act and the Community Reinvestment Act, are being dramatically changed during the Trump administration. How? So here is, again, with this banking rules, you get into a lot of jargon. But basically, the Community Reinvestment Act is this law passed in 1977, signed by President Jimmy Carter. And it requires that banks uh, make an effort to lend in low and moderate income uh, neighborhoods. And right now, Mnuchin and Auding are going about changing all the rules that are used to enforce this law. So, for example, one of the things they're talking about is really loosening the restrictions on whether or not banks need to have branches in low-income communities. But another thing that's happening, and it's not Mnuchin and Odding who are doing this, is over at HUD, Ben Carson, is dramatically weakening the Fair Housing Act. Uh, for 50 years, uh, there has been this concept, the jargon for it is disparate impact. It basically says that if you can use statistics to prove that there's a pattern of discrimination, you don't need like a letter from someone saying, I don't want to make a loan to black people, right? So, for example, last year, we were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize for our analysis of 31 million mortgage records, where we found that there were 61 cities nationwide where people of color were more likely to be denied for a loan, even when they made the same amount of money, tried to take out the same size loan, and live in the same neighborhood. So, what Ben Carson is saying is that the rules should be changed so that if when you have a finding like that, it doesn't prove discrimination. And in fact, with more and more of these decisions being made by computers now um, and algorithms, there's even like a special carve out that says if the discrimination, if the bank is using an algorithm and it's resulting in a discriminatory impact, then it makes it almost impossible to hold the bank liable. You know, so they would just say like, oh, I'm sorry, the computer says the computer says that you don't qualify. And that could be like a reasonable excuse. What made you angriest? Um, I think that what made me angriest was actually the impotence of our government during this whole decade that led to this point, right? That I did not realize that there was this secret story of very senior people who came constantly at every step of the way over this 10-year period with very good— From 2008. From 2008, from the moment of the bust. You know, I mean, like, remember, 2008, yes, we can, right? Seems like a long time ago now. Yes, we can. We can change things. Obama comes in, right? Bush is gone. And all these people came forward and they said, we don't need to bail out the banks. We can have a program like Franklin Roosevelt did back in the 1930s to bail out the people. And then learning that that New Deal program actually made money for the government as it helped millions, it helped a million Americans stay in their homes, created the 30-year fixed mortgage, and then how even when foreclosures happened, this government-run bank sold them off one at a time to 
individual families instead of in bulk to speculators, which is what happened um, over the last decade. To know that there were like very senior people in the room who were making this argument the whole time, who were just ignored every step of the way. And this is all under Obama. This is all under Obama. So what we have is, during the Obama years, we have decision after decision being made to give benefits to these homewreckers instead of everyday Americans. And then with Trump, they end up in charge running the country themselves. ask you, as a result of, of the, the news we're seeing, the news cycle this week, and your knowledge right. of Mike Pence, right. do you think he's complicit in Trump's many impeachable offenses? Well, if you look back to the Trump-Russia stuff, uh, he was really uh, careful and didn't seem to be terribly exposed in all the, the many facets of that investigation. And that was one uh, wild and, and uh, expansive investigation. So there's, you know, a lot of Trump people got swept up in that. Um, but Pence was very careful. It was actually, to me, when I was, when I was covering that, it was very remarkable how little Pence's fingerprints showed up on things. Um, what's interesting about Ukraine and this the, the, the Ukraine-Trump-Biden uh, thing going on right mm-hmm. now is that Pence is, appears to be right in the center of it yeah. in, in a way that he never was with Russia. So remember, he, he has a meeting with um, with the, the Ukraine pre- President Zelensky uh, back at the, the beginning of September. And um, and afterwards, uh, some of the reporters uh, get a chance to ask him questions. And they two questions go to him. All right. Number one, did you discuss Joe Biden? And Pence says, no, they did not talk about Biden. Right. OK, uh, two. What did you talk about? Well, we talked about uh, foreign. We talked about corruption inside the government. That's what we talked about. So that to me and we I mean, you know, ever since Monday, Tuesday, when this thing really blew wide open, uh, people have been wondering, oh, well, maybe they did talk about Biden, but they didn't Mm -hmm. really talk to say the name. Right. But um, I mean, certainly that's the those are the orders that if you look at that transcript of, of, of Trump's call with Zelensky, right. those were the orders that he gave to, to Barr and to um, Giuliani, uh, to Giuliani. Right. Yeah. And so, Barr and Giuliani I mean, really Barr and Giuliani were mentioned throughout the call. Pence wasn't. Um, he wasn't mentioned in the in the not a transcript in the summary of the phone call. But he does come up in the whistleblower's complaint. He he comes up just once. Uh, According to the whistleblower, Trump instructed Pence to cancel his trip where he was supposed to go to represent the U.S. at Zelensky's inauguration in May. Instead, they sent Energy Secretary Rick Perry. The whistleblower added that Mm. at the same time, White House officials said it was made clear to them that Trump did not want to meet with Zelensky until he saw how the Ukrainian leader, quote, chose to act in office. Um, but but this was uh, uh, something where they pulled Mike Pence back and said, no, you're not going. Mm, yeah, that's right. That's interesting. Well, here's the thing, right? Pence's job inside the White House, one, one of his jobs inside the White House is, is carrying the message. And that's, that's kind of what he's been doing for his, well, most of his political career, right? Since he gets elected to Congress and you know, through the governorship and then now. 
So when he has that meeting in September with Zelensky, he's carrying the message. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the the question now is, okay, did he know that this is what appears to be a a blackmail message? Did he have any, um, you know, any idea of of what Trump really (laughs) meant with all this? Uh Um, It's hard to tell. Let me let me get into the Trump-Pence relationship here for a second, because I think this really goes to the heart of what may or may not have happened with, with, with Pence here. Uh, he doesn't really have a super close relationship with Trump. It's not, it's kind of warm, but aloof. Right. And, uh, and I, I think that, you know, this is work. it works both ways. When things are going good, they get legislation passed, you know, there's the plaudits and whatnot. Um, uh, Pence's team will go, will, will swoop in for the victory and they'll talk about how, you know, how close they work with everyone and how influential they are right. and all that. Yep. Um, but when things get hot, like with Russia and, and then here with Ukraine, uh, you see them start to wall themselves off and, oh, we're not, you know, not really involved with all that. Mm-hmm. I noticed in my reporting that Pence is not, he is not the Svengali. He's not the shadow president. So let's, let's put that one to bed. Okay. That's not real. Right. I'm with like you. He doesn't secretly right. run everything. Right. But he's also not the glorified coat rack. He's not the guy who's just kind of, you know, the elf on the shelf, right? The, the one sitting there in the back of the room, just there nodding his head. He has a few lanes of policy that he deals with. And occasionally he can kind of nudge Trump on issues, but he doesn't force him. He doesn't because he knows that he has to, in order to survive forward to 2024 and try to win that Trump base to win the Republican nomination, (laughs) he cannot cross Trump ever. Uh And because, right, he could get dumped from the ticket in 2020. That's 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 a a distinct possibility. And and it looks like Trump threatens to do that regularly, not that uh, not publicly, but it seems like that's the case. Well, you know, I reported this um, after after I finished up the book. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't get it in there, but I reported this with Yahoo News a few weeks ago about Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump right. uh, talking about this, discussing this option. Now, I should say that there are people say this is completely false. There's nothing to it, um, but it appears to be real. And um, it, this is it. It hangs over Pence's head, and you, his some of some of his advisors, former advisors, will talk about how these are these are loyalty tests that Pence has to go through. They're still making him jump through hoops, even after three years of being tied together with Trump. Right, right. Well, you know the the whole story. Mike Pence is just he's a. There's something about him, and I've always felt that way. It's hard to put your finger on, but you even wrote it, Tom Lobianco, in your book. You wrote, um, mm-hmm. as you began reporting and researching for the book, quote, I had the same nagging feeling that I had when I covered him in Indiana. I was missing something about him. I was misunderstanding mm-hmm. him. What I found was a clever politician, more cunning than most gave him credit for, and precisely why he has eluded scrutiny for so long. Indeed, as one longtime acquaintance put it, boring is his camouflage. Was that what you were missing, that he was boring, or was there something more? <laughs> well, when, when you, when you, at the beginning, when you said, you know, condolences for having to cover him, I thought, <laughs> I thought you meant it was because he's so boring. Well, as a there's that. And he's just a bad person, <laughs> from what I can tell. <laughs> well, he's boring. Look, he's publicly, he's boring. He's very scripted. He never moves off script. He, you know, he's, he's, um, doesn't tell very good jokes. He's not terribly 
as a, as a politician, right, as a subject to cover, you I mean, forget the politics for a second, right. you know, but just as a subject, it doesn't draw a lot of attention. I think that's what, you know, a lot of us were worried about what, what would happen if Clinton came into office. I mean, she's not going to be a terribly interesting president to cover. Right. Um, so that's, but one of the, somebody who knew him from the, from the late eighties and kind of kept tabs on him since then, uh, we'll say a contemporary told me that, look, that's his strategy. I mean, he's very good at it. It's boring is, is his way of avoiding detection. So he kind of is able to, you know, move stealthily, so to say. And, uh, and look, I think that's how he's gotten so far. He's very good at the inside game. He's good at, if he ever ran for president and, uh, you know, by all accounts, it looks like they're trying to line up a run in 2024. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the inside game. Yeah. That's that's him. But here's the thing. Uh, uh, Again, it goes back to my problem with these so-called Christians. Again, as an atheist Jew, I'm more Christian than most of them. If you talk about being a good person and, and wanting to help other people and the actual teachings of Jesus Christ, um, He's just a hypocrite. If he really held true to his beliefs, he would have left the ticket when the Access Hollywood tape came out. And apparently, according to reporting, Karen Pence, his wife, who he calls mother, um, was angry about this, right? You, you wrote that on election night, she refused to kiss him, saying, mm-hmm. you got what you wanted, Mike, leave me alone. Um, obviously, his ambition mm-hmm. was greater than his... Uh, moral compass it appears that way i mean based on the reporting it it appears that you know look everybody has ambitions of some sort but it appears that he lets the ambition really take control certainly the the higher he climbs um let me tell you about that people have been talking a lot recently about this you know karen refusing to kiss him yeah Uh, you know the first time i heard that bit it was about uh i thought she was angry at trump she was just pissed off at him but the more I've reported this, the more I came to believe that she's actually pissed off at Mike. And here's the reason why. They took a gamble by by siding with by joining up with Trump in sure. July 2016. And when they take that initial gamble, the calculation is that they'll be able to run in in their own right in 2020. And after Trump invariably will lose, right? right That's the right, thinking in right. the moment. Yep. And he just kind of catapults and then Pence will catapult to the front of the Republican field. So when Trump wins, they lose that. It just screws up their entire Ah, game plan. And I uh think the reason Karen. Yeah, because remember, Karen's more than just, you know, angry school mom, whatever, you know, that caricature of her. She's his chief political advisor. Really? Yeah. Don't underestimate her. And what is her criteria? I know she's a school teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, her qualifications, she, sorry, not yeah. her criteria. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, yes, she is a school teacher, um, been a teacher for years. Um, but, but beyond that, understand that, and this is something I didn't fully grasp until I started work on the book, understand that she is his single most important political advisor and advisor oh. on everything else. But in terms of the team, the two of them running for the White House, running for whatever it is, you know, it's just the two of them. That's the inner circle. So that's why she refuses to kiss him on election night, because they took that risk and everything was supposed to go so well. And they would catapult to the front of the pack for, you know, Republican nomination 2020. And it just blows up in their face. And now 
he's going to have to spend four years with Trump carrying the water for Trump. It's easier to wash off four months of carrying the water for Trump than it is to wash off four years or even eight true. years of That's carrying true. water for Trump. We've just heard clips today, starting with past present, explaining what happened to Rudy Giuliani. Turns out nothing. He's always been terrible. Intercepted explained Bill Barr's ideas about the absurd unitary executive theory. The majority report highlighted a bit of Barr's and Pompeo's style of authoritarianism. Democracy Now! dove into Mike Pompeo as a Christian crusader. And finally, we just heard the broadcast detailing the long, sad arc of Mike Pence and how he lost by winning. Members will hear more on Stephen Miller's sadistic, racist past that made him the perfect fit for Trump's sadistic, racist immigration policies. So to hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Aaron from Philly. Just had a few thoughts on the show about Hong Kong uh, that you aired last week. And the part about how now the NBA has gotten all mixed up in that as well. Uh, it just so happens that a couple of weeks ago, shortly after the whole NBA situation got started with the, the tweet and the guy getting sort of reprimanded for it and so on, my dad and I were at a exhibition game between Philadelphia and a team from Guangzhou here in Philly. And... Uh, a couple rows down from us, uh, there were a couple of people who decided to hold up some pro-Hong Kong signs and, and stage some small protests during the game. And on top of that, also, there happened to be a reporter from the local news sitting right there. So she got it all on camera of these people starting their little protest and then being thrown out by the arena security. And that went all around the news cycle for about a day or so and you know, having it watched it all go down i initially thought oh well you know it's a uh, pretty bad look you know they people are just you know making a comment doesn't seem to really be out of line in the stadium and and uh in any case you know in my little naive american point of view thinking oh well you know they're supporting hong kong and and trying to make a, a statement hoping maybe you know a message gets on the Chinese media if the game is broadcast over there and Hong Kong is, is on the side of democracy. So, you know, I, I'm with these protesters. And of course, in your inimitable way, you took my little black and white boxes and dumped them on the floor. And now I've just got this little puddle of gray that I'm not entirely sure what to do with. So uh, you called me out for setting you straight as you put it uh, a couple weeks ago and now i think you've managed to pay me back for that so thanks for keeping my world confusing and complex and never letting me know if i'm on the right side of an issue uh, that's the service i signed up for when i decided to become a member so keep doing that and stay awesome 
Hi, Jay. This is Polly from San Francisco. Um, I've called before. I'm actually calling about something that happened a few weeks ago that someone called in, and I meant to call earlier. Um, maybe this is too late to do it. I don't know. It was actually about people talking about 9-11, and I believe the caller's name was Aaron from Philadelphia. And I thought what Aaron had to say was really interesting um, because they said that there were two events from about 20 years ago that still had huge reverberations in our country. And they, of course, 9-11 was one. But the other one, I expected it to be the 2000 election. They actually cited the, uh, the Columbine shootings that I think happened in 99 and how that they thought had this huge impact on our society. And it certainly was very important and shooting, mass shootings are extremely important. But for me, election 2000 is the thing that really, really has had a massive impact on our society. At the time as a progressive, I remember being horrified at what was going on in Florida and certainly the outcome where the Supreme Court selected our president for us was completely unfair and wrong. And actually evidence since has showed that Al Gore won that election and should have been our president. But that by the wayside, I do think that the election 2000 and the PTSD that so many of us on the left have following that is really a huge thing that's affecting our society even still. So I just had wanted to call in and make that response to the other caller because to me, when they said, oh, there's two events, I just jumped to it has to be election 2000. Um, and it wasn't. But anyway, uh, thank you for the show and all that I love that you play comments and that you take input from people. And um, I'm glad you're back from vacation and that you had a good vacation too. Okay. Thanks, Jay. Hey, Jay, thank you for uh, recording my message. I appreciate the show quite a bit. This is Chris in San Diego. And um, I've been listening to a lot of stuff about uh, Facebook ads and all of that, and targeted ads. And I was wondering, it's kind of a legal question, but it comes to mind that um, I'm not sure why the broadcast news outlets like ABC, NBC, CBS, I mean, they, they sell ads, they sell political ads that are certainly, um, if not outright lies, then distortions of the truth. And now they, they get away with it. Nobody bothers them. And now everybody's upset about Facebook doing the same thing, selling ads to political campaigns or candidates that you know lie or distort the truth and everybody's upset about that so i wondered what's going on with that i would appreciate an answer or you know if you do show about that that'd be great
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. All right, laws regarding truth in political advertising. Let's do this. Here's the law or the rule, or the deal, broadcast channels, so that means not cable, but your NBCs, your ABCs, etc., those channels are required by law, there was a court ruling on this, they're required by law to run campaign ads, like if they accept any, then they have to accept all, and they are required to run campaign ads without censorship which means that politicians can lie and there's nothing those channels can do about it. This does not apply to issue ads. So it's if it's not specifically about the campaign promoting a specific candidate and it's just like a, we want you to believe this thing about this policy, that doesn't apply. And it doesn't apply to ads run by PACs at all. So even if the PAC is specifically supporting a candidate, they're under a different set of rules. The law, as I said, does not apply to cable news channels, so your MSNBCs, your CNNs, Foxes, etc. But their tendency, even though they're not bound by the law, their tendency is to run ads without censorship or objection, probably for a variety of reasons that has a lot to do with we don't want to get into a political fight with politicians. We want to report on the news and, you know, if the ads are a lie, maybe we'll report on it, but they, they don't want to actually censor the ads, even though they can. They're allowed to. And sometimes they do. In extreme cases, cable networks have rejected ads for being demonstrably false. No law applies to Facebook, just like cable companies, meaning that, like cable companies, they are perfectly free to help fact-check ads or reject them outright, but they have chosen not to and announced this as their policy. Hence, the outrage, especially because the nature of the internet is fundamentally different than TV broadcasts, ads and promoted posts on Facebook can go viral in a way that TV ads can't, unless, of course, you post them on the internet. And wildly false statements can be crafted to be more enticing for targeted audiences to get them to click and share and all of that, so it increases the damage that false ads can do when they're on the internet. So those are the basics, and as backstory, that ruling that I mentioned came down on deciding that the government shouldn't be in charge of determining what political truth is in advertising because the government could then use that power to discriminate against their political enemies. Therefore, it was ruled that the government needs to stay out of determining truth altogether, which then spilled over into broadcast companies which are being regulated by the government saying, okay, as an extension of the government, by way of this regulation, you can't try to censor or, or uh, you know, determine truth on your own for these political ads either. So that's where we are in terms of corporate media, broadcast media, and internet uh, behemoths. Now I just want to let you know that we're a week and a half in since I 
announced this major fundraising campaign that we have going, we've hit about 10% of our goal of new patrons that we need, which is great. We need a total of a thousand. We're approaching 600, but you know, we, we didn't start at zero. We started at, you know, 500 and something. So I know how this goes. I've done fundraisers before. Uh, they usually come down to the last minute, which makes me panic. I would love for this to not be one of those times. And, you know, usually my fundraisers are not for the show. Like more often I'm doing fundraisers for a good cause, you know, support this nonprofit, that sort of a thing. And those come down to the last minute and it's not my own financial neck on the line. So I would love to try to wrap this campaign up earlier rather than later so that I can sleep easy again, knowing that everything's going to be okay. Unlike our regular fundraisers, you know, I'm not even asking for a big chunk of money. I'm not saying like, hey, I need, uh, you know, a, a giant pile of money right now. Please give me, you know, 50 or $100. I'm asking for small monthly pledges. So if you think this is something you're going to be interested in, uh, I would love if you would take uh, action now rather than wait until the last minute. And I got a treat for you today as a little incentive. You'll see how this ties in. You know, I've, I've taken to including my favorite limericks of the past few days at the end of each episode. Today, I'm going to include a bonus limerick, but only in the show notes. Not on the bonus show, not for members, nothing like that. In the show notes. Everyone can, can get it, you can read it. If you're driving, don't look now. So you have to save the episode until later, look at it then. And while you're at it, if you feel so inclined, you can tap on the link to our Patreon page that you will find right next to the limerick. It's a win-win. So that's it for today. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, plus a bonus limerick today, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. And for today's limerick, you may have heard that last Friday, the uh, Honorable Congressman Elijah Cummings, who by all accounts was a really good guy, had his memorial service. He passed away last week. And at LuC17 on Twitter writes, Elijah's great labors are through, but we still face the perils he knew. We must all take a stand in the crisis at hand, for his challenge is, what did you do?